This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Deacon Matt Woodley. So a few weeks ago, after our big snowfall that we had, got 10 inches or so, I got home late from work at about 10 p.m. on a Wednesday night, and I was standing out in my driveway with a shovel. And my driveway's really long. I was thinking, I am going to attack this thing, and I'm going to get it done. So I shoveled a few things, and I thought, man, this is going to take me till like 1 in the morning. And this guy drove by with this big white truck with this huge orange plow on the end. He drives by, he rolls down his window, and he says, hey, man, you need some help? I'm thinking, yes, I do need a lot of help. But I said, no, I got this. I got this, because he's going to probably charge me a lot of money. So he said, he looked at me, and he said, no, man, I'll do it for free. And I was stunned. So I walked over to him and said, I'm just curious. Why would a guy be driving by in a big white truck at 10 p.m. offering to plow my driveway for free? And he says, oh, yeah, man, God is number one in my life. That's why. I'm like, well, now I'm really curious. And I'm like, tell me how that happened. Of course, he doesn't know I'm a pastor. It's like, what happened? What happened? He goes, he starts telling me this story. He just gets out. He's like super excited. He's kind of like just moving. And he's like, well, I came from Mexico a few years ago. You know, I immigrated here. I'm I'm trying to make it. I'm working 12 hours, 12 12 bucks an hour. And man, you wouldn't want to know me then because I was in spiritual darkness. Satan had a grip on me. I was angry. I was fighting. I was in gangs. One time I got so mad, I stabbed a guy in the thigh. I had to go to prison for a year. My mom was always like trying to get me to come to church. She'd always cry and say, Juan, Juan, come to church, come to church. I go, Mom, I don't do church. That's not for me. I don't do that. She's crying and crying. So finally I went. I went one day. I see all these people. They're raising their hands like this. I go, oh, that is so stupid. I don't, well, who are these people? They're fanatics. I, I hate this. I hate church. He said, and then one day, Jesus got a hold of me. And he captured my heart. And he changed my life. And the light of Christ shined into my heart. He freed me from spiritual darkness. And now God is number one in my life. That's my story. He said, no, I'm on the worship team at my church. I sing on the praise team. And he starts singing at the top of his lungs this praise song. So there we are, two guys standing in the middle of the street at 10 p.m. We're both singing at the top of our lungs because I knew the song. One of us had a really good voice. I won't tell you who it was. So here's one, the guy who was in spiritual darkness now driving around, roaming around with his big white truck, trying to bless people because God is number one in his life. Now, you might think of that story and go, think, that's really dramatic. That's unusual. And I would say, no, you're, you're, that's wrong. Because that story, moving from darkness to light, is the story that every follower of Jesus should be able to tell. Listen to this passage from Colossians chapter 1, one of the books in the New Testament, and it's describing all of us. It said, Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If you're following Jesus, you have been planted, you have been plucked out of one kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, and you have put in a new kingdom and planted in that kingdom. That is the story of every Christian. 
That is our story. I want to talk today about how this theme happened, started at the cross of Jesus. Well, really started early in the Bible, and it continued in the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, but it culminated in the cross of Jesus. And from our gospel reading, I want to zero in on one verse. John chapter 12, verse 31. Now is the ruler, uh, now is the judgment of this world, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. You can experience increasing freedom from the power of darkness in your life because of who Jesus is and what he's done. And you can experience increasing boldness and hope to move into places of darkness with the hope of Christ. This morning I want to talk about three things. And it's, there's an outline. If, you, if you're an outline kind of person, you want to follow along. If not, don't worry about it. But the outline is simply this. Three points. First of all, the case for the devil. Just a really short case. Secondly, the plan of the devil. And third, the defeat of the devil. Let's start with the plan of the devil. Let me just try to condense and summarize in like one minute what I think the church has taught about what the Bible says about the powers of darkness. This is the case. Oh, thank you. It's good to have a bishop here. Okay. You feel free to any time to just come, jump up and correct my sermon. <laughs> That's all you're going to need. <laughs> thanks. This is so important. I don't want anybody to miss this. Oh, thanks. Okay. Yeah, thanks. It's, uh, you got my back. Thanks. So the case, the case for the devil. Here's what the Bible says. That the devil exists and is real, with real personality and real activity. The devil, like all of us, was created good, rebelled against God's good plan, and fell into sin and darkness, just like us. And the devil is bent on evil. Jesus said, if you flip one page over, Jesus said this in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief, which is the devil, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. So this evil is not only individual, but it's also, it can be institutional. It can get into systems, into governments, into politics, into corporations, into ideologies, into movements. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6. We wrestle, against flesh, no, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Our real enemy is not human beings. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You think of dramatic examples, obvious examples, like what happened in Nazi Germany in the 1940s, what happened in a lot of Marxist regimes throughout the 50s and 60s and 70s, or maybe even with American racism, some of the racism that was embedded in some of our systems. It's not just individual, but it's institutional. Now, demonic activity is not the only explanation for what goes wrong. There could be a lot of explanations. There could be mental illness. There could be some addiction. There could be people just doing bad things. There could be people making bad decisions. But it is one example among many possibilities of why things get so broken and messed up. And it's one that we need to pay attention to. 
Now, if you're thinking, really? Demons? Believe in electricity, neurology, the scientific method, and you still believe there's little evil fairies going around in the air? Well, let me think of it this way. This is the way I think of it. We all think in terms of worldviews. We all have categories. We have lenses through which we see the world. The, one of the predominant worldviews in our world today is what's sometimes called naturalism, which means the only thing that exists is nature. What's natural, what you can touch, what you can see, what you can weigh, what you can measure, what you can hold in your hands. That is the only reality. And that is a very popular worldview. And so therefore, everything has natural causes. And then if there, everything has natural causes, we can fix it by ourselves. And it's a closed system. But I want to wonder this morning, is that the only way to look at the world? Is that the only worldview? Is that the only worldview that accounts for all of reality? I was talking to our friend, Archbishop Kawashi, who's the Archbishop of Jos, Nigeria. He's a very intelligent man. He's been trained in his own country. He's been trained in the West. He's been trained in America. He's a brilliant man, actually. He loves modern science. He loves medical, medical care. He, he loves electricity. He has decent cars. He's not a backward, superstitious person at all. I asked him, what do you think about the demonic? And he said, you know, you in the West, I think you've gained a lot with your scientific advancements, but I think you've also lost something. I think you've lost some spiritual perception of spiritual reality, things that are not there. It's like a man that's grown hard of hearing that can't pick up certain sounds. It's like a woman that uh, her sense of smell is beginning to deteriorate and she can't pick up certain aromas. You're that kind of person. Now, I'm not trying to, with this case, I'm not trying to prove to you if you don't believe in the devil, I'm not trying to prove that there is a devil. I'm just trying to get you to think that maybe there's another way of looking at the world. Jesus clearly believed in the devil. The Gospels are full. The, very, the Gospel of Mark, the very first chapter in the Gospel of Mark is a story of an exorcism, Jesus confronting demonic powers. And it's told in a very non-sensationalized, kind of matter-of-fact kind of way. Not like you would tell a story if you were trying to be dramatic or make a point. It's just, this is history. This has happened. It has that kind of air about it. What about the plan of the devil? Does the devil actually have a plan? Actually, according to the Bible, he's very purposeful. Demonic spirits are very intelligent and purposeful. Three things, this is how I would summarize, it's not exhaustive, but three things about the devil, about his plan. He wants to deceive, he wants to demoralize you, and he wants to ultimately destroy you. The very first instance of Demonic activity in the Bible is not found in the New Testament. It's not found in the stories of Jesus. It's actually found in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, where Satan comes in the guise of a serpent and says to Adam and Eve, did God really say, implying what kind of God would put limits on your pleasure and joy? What kind of God would tell you that you can't have it all right now? What kind of God would do that? Did God really say that? Come on. It's an attack on the goodness of God, that you can't trust God. All of us carry these, these wounds from 
maybe bad experiences with our mom or our dad or, or maybe friends or a church or whatever. We have these wounds and it's like, and this trusting, this childlike trust in God somehow gets shut down. And we get deceived and we think that God is not good. I can't trust God. God has an agenda and he's holding out on me. So I can't give my heart to him. Well, Satan can use those fears and those doubts and those hurts and those wounds and expose them and deceive us. Second thing is demoralize. In the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren who <clears throat> accuses them night and day. He never stops. He doesn't shut up in terms of accusing you. I have a friend who is a grandma used to say, John, if you can't say, there's always something nice you can say about everybody. And he said, well, what about the devil, Grandma? Can you say something nice about him? And she thought about it for a minute, and she said, well, he is a hard worker. I will give him that. <laughs> but seriously, he works hard to condemn you, to pile on feelings of inadequacy, insecurity, worthlessness, that you don't measure up that you're never going to get over your bad habits, that you are fundamentally alone with your problems, that nobody will really understand, that nothing can really help you, that you're stuck. Satan wants you to be in that place. Now, some of that can come from our own fallenness, our own wounds, but some of it, again, there could be multiple causes. And the third is Satan loves to destroy. As, G as we heard Jesus say earlier, destroy families, destroy marriages, destroy cultures, Destroy distorted images of sexuality with pornography. Destroy babies. Destroy vi with violence and the shedding of innocent blood. And finally, destroy hope in redemption and in God. New York Magazine ran a story that I read this last week called The Poison You Pick. And it was about the opioid crisis. Now, let me just say that this is a crisis that is going to affect more and more of us, or either us or loved ones. And I want to also say that this is not the only way we can get hooked and addicted. But the article said that there's a crisis ravaging our country. Two million people are hit, hooked on opioids right now. By best estimates, 52,000 people in this country will die this next year, in 2018, from opioid-related deaths. The author of the article, who I don't believe is a Christian, said, the scale and darkness of this crisis is a sign of a civilization in a more acute crisis than we knew. And he goes on to say, to see this epidemic as an addiction problem, which it is, but it's more than that, he's implying, to just, just see it as an addiction problem is to miss something. And here's what he said, the despair that currently makes us so many want to fly away. It's a sign of a culture, he said, yearning to give up indifferent to life and death, enraptured by withdrawal and nothingness. I read that and think, you know, I, I don't struggle with opioid addictions, but I, can, I, I think there's ways we can all relate to ways that we're indifferent to life and death, ways that we're enraptured by withdrawal and nothingness. Well, there's good news. 
Third point, the defeat of the devil. First, I just wanted to see what we're up against because it's not something that you and I can fix. It's not fixable naturally because it's not a natural cause. It's supernatural, so it needs a supernatural solution. Back to our key verses, verses 31 and 32, or 31 in the Gospel of John. Jesus is saying, now is the ruler of this world, now is the judgment of this world, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Let's back up a little bit to get the context. So in verse 23, Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Son of Man is a name that Jesus designated for himself with some rich, rich Old Testament roots, this divine-like figure. He said, what is, it, what is he talking about to be glorified? What's he talking about? Well, in the Gospel of John, that's a way to say, I'm going to die on a cross. I'm going to be crucified. Now, if you saw anybody dying on a cross, you would say, there's nothing glorious about that. That is just sheer defeat, ugliness, human barbarity, cruelty. There's nothing good about it. And yet Jesus said, look at verse 24. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So he says, I'm like that grain of wheat, Jesus is saying. I'm going to, grow into the, I'm going to go into the ground. I'm going to die. Actually, I'm going to be lifted up, die on a cross. But through that, I am going to give life to the world. I am going to bless the world by saving the world from their sins. It will bear much fruit. But why is Jesus so troubled then? In verse 27, he says, now is my soul troubled. Why is he troubled? He's really in agony. He's really torn up. We see in the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus has what's called his uh, trial in Gethsemane in the garden, where one gospel writer said he sweat drops of blood. He's under such intense pressure. Why is he so troubled? I mean, there have been famous people that face death without, with repose, with calm. Socrates, supposedly. Russell Crowe in Gladiators. I know it's a movie, but he just sort of faces it, all stoic-like, not that troubled. He just walks right into it. Why is Jesus troubled? Well, here's the key to this story. Jesus is walking into something that no human being has ever walked into. He is walking into the collective darkness of this world. Darkness that's ever existed, darkness that ever would exist, my darkness, your darkness. Walked into human darkness, political darkness, legal darkness, religious darkness. He walked into demonic darkness. He's walking into all of it. And he's going to face it like nobody ever has in human history. And he's going to take it upon himself, absorb it, and take the sting out of it. Remove the power of it. And that's why he says in verse 31, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Jesus is going in like, this is like a Navy SEAL raid. He's going in. And he's bringing people out. And the power of the captors is now broken. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And he says, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now that's an astounding claim that Jesus made. That through the work of the cross, I will draw all people to myself. Does that mean that everybody will come to faith in Jesus? Well, actually, earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus said that wouldn't happen. 
But what he's saying is there's an attractive power about me that's greater than the power of darkness in your life or my life or in our culture. There is an attractive power. Nobody can be forced to go to Jesus. You and I can only be drawn to Jesus by the goodness of his love, by his light, by his beauty. We can be drawn into it. So Jesus says, I will draw all people to myself. That is the defeat of the devil. And even now, you know, some of you, I know, Jesus may be drawing you right now in a way you've never experienced before in your life. You feel like something's going on inside of me. I don't know what it is. I don't understand all of this. But there's a drawing going on. I'm being attracted to something good and something holy and something pure. You should feel that way. Jesus wants that. When we begin to believe this, trust, not believe this, but believe Jesus, apply his work to our lives and live it out in a specific embodied community called the church, when we begin to experience it, not just in our head, not just in my heart, but in relationships, in a body, through worship, through prayer, we begin to experience increasing freedom from darkness and increasing boldness to display darkness. I read a story this week about a police officer from Sacramento named Mike. And uh, I read it in this book, and I thought, wow, this is a great story, but it's so short. I want to know more. So I Googled the guy's name, and I found his contact info, and uh, I sent him an email. I said, I want to talk to you. Would you call me? So he called me. Tell me more about this story. Tell me more what happened. So he said, yeah, for years I was a uh, detective with the gang unit for the, uh, the county around Sacramento. And um, we lived and worked in this area called Detroit Boulevard, which was, at the time, was one of the worst areas of Sacramento. Police really didn't want to go in there. It was a dark place. There was gangs, there was gang houses, there was drug, there was drive-by shootings. It was a place of violence, it was a place of assaults. He said, I used to work there. And I was part of a church, and I just told the pastor, I said, I feel like I might be being led to plant a church in Detroit Boulevard. The pastor said, well, take, take eight people and just go and, and just walk around the neighborhood and pray. So they walked around the neighborhood and they prayed. And he said, as we went from house to house, he said, sometimes I just, we felt, we all felt this incredible spiritual darkness in certain places. He said it was like a pressure on us. It was like a chill, he said. I said, I, I don't know how to describe it. He said, but if you've ever felt close to God, if you've ever felt kind of a spiritually moving experience, he said, this was the exact opposite of that. So we just kept walking and we kept praying and then eventually we decided to start doing worship services. So we found a pavilion, an open pavilion that was on uh, school property. The principal of the school, the superintendent of the school district let us use it, actually encouraged us to use it. So we would show up and we worship in this open facility. He said the principal of the school loved it. Because as soon as we started worshiping there, vandalism against the school just went down. Nobody wanted to vandalize the school anymore. It was no fun. And then um, he said, actually, the Sacramento Bee, which is a, not a Christian newspaper, it's a secular newspaper, they picked up a, a story of how the crime was plummeting in Detroit Boulevard neighborhood. And they didn't credit it to us, or they didn't credit it to spiritual things. They just said, between 2013 to 2014, crime plummeted 
in Detroit Boulevard. Actually, there was no single assault in that whole time period. He said, we talked about that as detectives at, at, and our county uh, police officers thing, and it's like, we were astounded. I said, yeah, I bet you guys are good, but you're not that good. And he said, no, we're not. We're not that good. I said, Mike, what would you say? So I'm going to preach this Sunday. What would you want me to say to our congregation? What would, I, what would I want to say to, to these people that I love? And he said this, and I, I want to read it. He said, find the darkest and hardest area around you and go right into it. Start a fire of Christ's love in that dark place. Don't run away from the darkness. If Christ is truly in us, we should be taking his light right into the darkness. I love that. His church has 25 people worshiping in that open pavilion. Now they're inside the school. But I said, Mike, you have the, I know, I track a lot of churches around the country. You have the impact of a megachurch of like 10 times that size. You guys are doing amazing ministry. That's the hope we have. Because of what Christ has done, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. It's been broken. It's like a drug lord that's been evicted. But there's a really personal application to this as well. It's really something for me. I think there's something for all of us. And that is, if you have experienced any darkness in your own heart, and I am not trying to talk you into something. I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm not trying to work you into anything. I'm just saying, if you, when I was talking about deception, when I was talking about demoralization, when I was talking about destruction, maybe just something resonated with you. Something like, yes, I am not in a really good place. Or I am moving into a bad place. There is something at work on me that's got a hold on me, that's got a grip on me. And I am not experiencing that kind of freedom. And you're, you feel really stuck. Let me just tell you how you do not need to respond. You don't need to be anxious. You don't need to be scared. You don't need to be ashamed. Why not? Because Jesus is your deliverer. You have an advocate. You have somebody who has your back. He is for you, not against you. And you can experience increasing freedom from any darkness that has happened to you, that has been foisted upon you. Maybe you were truly victimized. You were truly hurt. And it's left a wound. And Satan has used that wound to hurt you even more. Or maybe you've made decisions with your own will that have put you into places of demonic darkness. You can start today to turn a corner, to receive the light of Christ, to display the light of Christ. Don't leave here this morning without at least telling God and maybe one person, yeah, I need some help. Would you pray for me? Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.